From the nation's capital, this is D.C. Public Safety. I'm your host, Leonard Sipes. Ladies and gentlemen, today's show is Parole in America, and today's guest is Beth Schwartzapfel. She is a staff writer for the Marshall Project, www.themarshallproject, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L project.org. Beth, welcome to D.C. Public Safety. Thanks for having me. The Marshall Project, give me a quick overview. Uh, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization that covers the criminal justice system. So we're very much like a traditional newspaper or magazine where all of us come from the world of newspapers and magazines. Uh, but we don't rely on advertisers. We just rely on foundations and uh, and readers to support us. And to my listeners, I, I go to the Marshall Project every single day uh, to get a summation of news throughout the United States and throughout the world. It's extraordinarily interesting. Again, www. The Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, project.org. And you wrote an article, Life Without Parole, and I've read it several times. Give me a quick summation. So basically, we took a look at the system of parole boards across the 50 states in our country. And what we found was uh, we're in this era where uh, there seems to be this political consensus from both sides of the aisle. Perhaps there's a, tenth, a tenth, uh, temporary pause in that consensus as the Republican uh, presidential candidates battle it out. But in any case, until until the uh, primary season heated up, there seemed to have been a political consensus uh, from both sides of the aisle and from all, all walks of life in this country that our criminal justice system has gotten out of control, that there's too many people in prison, that when they go, they go for too long, um, that there's this net that ensnares way too many people uh, for way too long for, for low-level crimes. And uh, there's even been some talk that even for more serious crimes, people are there for too long, there's not enough rehabilitation, and they're not getting out with enough tools um, to succeed in the outside world. Uh, and as we've sort of ex- begun to examine each step in the process, you know, we're having this national conversation about policing. Um, we seem to be having a national conversation about sentencing. Uh, there was this giant part of the criminal justice system that nobody had really taken a look at or accounted for. And that's, uh, the, uh, that's parole boards. Uh, because in so many cases in this country, how long a person serves in prison actually is not decided by a judge or by a jury, but rather by a parole board. For the uninitiated, give me a definition of parole and why it's different from maxing out, which we know as mandatory release and probation. So what is parole? Sure. Uh, so in many states, uh, when someone is given a sentence uh, for a crime, or in some states it varies by what type of crime, whether they're given this type of sentence, but it's called an indeterminate sentence. So that means they might be sentenced to five to 10 years or 25 years to life. Um, and what that means is that they could be released at any time in that window. So in a five to 10 year sentence, they could be released at five years, six years, seven years, eight years, nine years, 10 years. And the, the, the decision about when in that window of time they get released is made by a parole board. Now, let me see if I can summarize this. My impression is this, is that during the 1950s, the 1960s, and the 1970s, parole was used a lot. And the whole concept was, isn't it better to have this person prepared? Ordinarily, the person in the prison system goes through GED courses, vocational courses, substance abuse courses, if they are available. Uh, They behave themselves while in prison, and the parole board rewarded them with 
an early out, uh, lopping some, in some cases, uh, a significant number of years off of their sentence and releasing them under parole supervision. And that at one time was the mainstream method of getting out of prison in the United States. And that has shrunk considerably. Am I, do I have that right? That's, that's precisely correct. And I will say, the one thing I will say is at that time, it wasn't even really considered early release because when a judge would sentence somebody, uh, that judge would sort of in the back of their mind know that it was in all likelihood uh, that the person would be released uh, at some early po- point in their sentence if they could prove that they were rehabilitated, because that's just kind of how the system worked. So, you know, early release is often used interchangeably with parole. But I would say uh, that since parole is built into the sentence in the first place, it's not necessarily early. Good point. Good point. But it, you agree with me that it's declined and declined dramatically throughout the years. And now we're re-examining the use of parole now. Oh, considerably. Uh, uh, In the 1970s, somewhere in the neighborhood of three quarters of all American prisoners were released by parole boards. The number now is somewhere in the neighborhood of one quarter. And so what happened? So a number of things happened. Uh, The short answer is the the 1990s happened. (laughs) The tough on crime era. Uh, During the tough on crime era, there seemed to be this political uh, move towards parole being seen as soft on crime, Um, parole being seen, as we just talked about, as early release. And so governors who were looking for a way of um, posturing that they were not soft on crime um, would move to abolish parole, not just governors, of course, legislatures too. Um, And so during this time period, parole was abolished in uh, more than a dozen states. And in other states that maintain their parole boards, parole became increasingly hard to get. Um, and part of the reason for that is parole board members are, by and large, political appointees. In 44 states, they're appointed entirely by governors. And in almost all of the remaining states, they're appointed at least in part by governors. And in many of those states, they're also confirmed by legislators. So the parole board members were ex- are, were and are exquisitely sensitive to Uh, political wins, let's say. And so during this era, when the public was calling for more cops, more prisons, more jails, locking more people up, um, the parole board was very sensitive to that. And so here, if somebody came before them who in previous generations would have been a shoo-in for parole, somebody who had really cleaned up their act and did a really good job in prison, the parole board would say, no way I'm letting out a murderer because this is going to be in the paper tomorrow Mm -hmm. and the, the governor might boot me off the parole board. In the state of Maryland, uh, about uh, 12 years ago, where I was director of uh, public relations for the Maryland Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services, some of my agencies were a piece of cake, uh, like the law enforcement agencies, the correctional agencies were a bit tougher. But I also represented the parole board in the state of Maryland. And I spoke to the various chairs of the parole board, the parole commission, throughout my years there. And we were all startled by all the headlines throughout the country about the you know, the parole board getting in trouble because this person who was paroled went out and committed another violent crime. Uh, it, the fear um, and the acknowledgement of the political liability of releasing folks with histories of violence um, uh, became real. Uh, and my guess is, is that if we experienced that in the state of Maryland, that experience transcended the state and went throughout the country. 
Oh, certainly. And continues to this day. I mean, uh, I heard from an inmate in Ohio who uh, went to a, a little sort of in-service training that the parole board put on for inmates who are eligible for parole to sort of help them understand what to expect. And a large part of the training was this news clip they all had to watch about this guy who got parole and went out and killed somebody. Mm-hmm. And the parole board members, as part of this presentation, talked about what a very complicated position they're in, politically speaking, how they're public servants, accountable to the public, and the public doesn't want to see people like them released. Um, so certainly this is a reality everywhere you go. That said, when you talk to experts who study the issue, um, they'll all say, look, you're dealing with human behavior. It's impossible to expect a parole board to never make a mistake. And it's even incorrect a lot of the time to call them mistakes. Sometimes the parole board really does overlook some major red flag or doesn't have processes in place to get a paperwork, some kind of paperwork that would have indi- indicated the presence of a red flag. Um, but more often than not, the person really does seem, for, you know, uh, in, in the b- board's best estimation, to be rehabilitated. And, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. And every parole board member that I spoke with told me this, um, that, that it's just impossible to think that they're never going to release somebody who goes on to commit a crime. It's just human nature. Uh, and when a criminologist in, in, at, at Temple University um, sort of did this post-mortem of the parole board there after one of these incidents, um, he looked at it and he said, look, the board was just doing its job. They didn't do anything wrong. And it's unreasonable to say that we should no longer parole people because occasionally somebody goes out and commits another crime. That's just going to be if you're going to have parole, then that's just inevitably, unfortunately, going to happen from time to time. Okay, we've been in agreement throughout the program. Let me try something else. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of people in the criminal justice system, uh, my counterparts, spokespeople uh, throughout the country um, over the course of the last 10, 20 years. And this is something that I think is, is somewhat accurate, that every governor has spoken to every secretary of public safety, every director of corrections in every state throughout the country saying, we're spending way too much money on corrections. I need money for roads. I need money for universities. I need money for education. I need money for all sorts of things. And all I see from the corrections budget is that it goes up and up and up. Somehow, some way, you've got to figure out a way of operating and decreasing your budget, what can you do? And part of that decreasing of that budget, the decreasing of the prison population, would be a reliance upon the parole board to release more people. Am I right? Certainly. And, you know, I think there there have been uh, instances in recent years of positive ways to implement that kind of strategy and not as positive ways to implement that strategy. Uh, for instance, the Pro Board chair in Nebraska testified to um, to the legislature there that she felt pressure to release inmates that she didn't feel comfortable releasing um, because the Department of Corrections was leaning so hard on the board to release as many people as possible. These were, of course, sort of backroom hints, and, you know, meetings where there was subtle or not so subtle pressure applied. Uh, An alternative way that I've seen an approach like that is in Texas, um, where there was very public hearings where the board, um, through uh, help with some kind of committee, um, adopted a set of uh, target release rates where it was clearly laid out for them 
that inmates with a certain risk score um, who had done certain crimes, the board should expect to parole X percentage of those people. And when the system's working correctly, Texas actually releases a report at the end of each year to show how well they're meeting these expected benchmarks. Are mm-hmm. they actually paroling, say, I'm making this number up, but 75% of drug offenders? Are they actually paroling, say, 25% of violent offenders? And again, I'm making those numbers up, but the point is there was this transparent process where the expectations were laid out for the board of, ex- uh, of, of how many people in the different categories they were expected to parole each year. Now, there are a lot of complaints about how untransparent the Texas system is. So I don't mean to I don't mean to say that they're doing an awesome job as far as transparency is concerned. What I am saying is that um, there have been states that have tried to use the parole board positively as a way of uh, easing the burden on uh, the number of people that are incarcerated and the end dollars that the that the state is spending on that. Beth, I think we've nicely set up where the state of the art is now in terms of parole in the United States. And then I want to get on to a series of questions about uh, the problems in terms of implementing parole. If we have states that are saying to their secretaries of public safety for their director of corrections, you need to decrease the the budget. We can no longer pump endless amounts of money into corrections. Uh, If we agree to that and we agree that parole is one method uh, amongst many that people are are advocating uh, that we use to decrease the pressure on prison systems and to release other people who are deemed not to be a significant risk to public safety, then why isn't it happening? Why isn't it occurring? Uh, my, my reporting seems to indicate that it's largely because of politics. Because the, because the system is set up the way it is, because so many board members are appointed by governors and confirmed by legislators, um, they are ultimately uh, beholden in some way to public sentiment. And look, the average person on the street does not want to see a murderer released from prison. I mean, that's just a sort of knee-jerk, totally natural reaction of the public it does not square with the data, right? I mean, of all categories of inmates, murderers are actually the very least likely to reoffend, probably followed by sex offenders, mm-hmm. who are also extremely, extremely unlikely to reoffend. Um, and yet those two categories of offenders are the most despised by the public. And if you have a body that's responsive to public misinformation, um, then they're going to act on that. And they're going to say, look, I, it looks to me like, you know, you committed this crime in the heat of the moment when you were 20. You're now 45. You have grandchildren. You have a home to go home to. You have a GED. You have a journeyman certificate in plumbing or whatever it is. Um, get out of here. You're costing us a lot of money, and you're going to cost us even more money as you age. Um, that's that's sort of the rational evidence-based move for a parole board to take. But when you fear that your job is on the line, if you make a decision that you know would be unpopular on the op-ed pages the next day, then that's not how you're going to make decisions. So um, there, I, I did see a number of states that were trying to get away from this model. There are a handful of states where parole board members are civil servants, for instance, where they're sort of insulated from the political process. Uh, there are a couple of states, Hawaii comes to mind, where there's an, the nomination process is separate. And a, uh, I think the governor does the ultimate appointing, but the names that, uh, that are floated up to the governor are chosen by this very interesting panel that's comprised of people from a real mix of backgrounds, somebody from the state social work association, somebody from uh, the state's DA association, um, so that the, the people who end up in the pool for the governor to choose from have been extremely well vetted 
um, and have really deep backgrounds in the subject matter. Um, another really interesting system I found was in, uh, I believe it was South Dakota, um, where the coming into prison, uh, all inmates have to make a plan for themselves. They sit down with a social worker and there's a very, um, there's a, a system set up where, whereby they lay out um, a, a, a map, a roadmap for their time in prison. They set certain goals and the, and the person works with them to make sure they are realistic goals, such as I will get my GED or I will complete this anger management class or I will attend AA every week or whatever that is. And if you are found at the end of your incarceration to have been, um, quote unquote, substantially compliant with this plan that you made, and again, the rules of what substantially compliant means are very clearly laid out, then you never go to the parole board. Then you just get parole. Um, if you are not substantially compliant, then you go before the parole board. And if there are good reasons you aren't compliant, you can make your case to the board. But if there, if you were substantially compliant, then there's no deliberation. There's no politics. You just get out. Our guest today is Beth Schwartz-Affel. Uh, she is a staff writer with the Marshall Project, www.themarshallmarshallproject.org. Uh, Beth, you wrote this article, Life Without Parole. Uh, it's an extraordinarily interesting article, and I'll put it in the show notes uh, for D.C. Public Safety so others can get to it. All right, you and I have been having a running email conversation about the effectiveness of parole. Um, I took a look at uh, data, and it's... Uh, age data, I will admit, from the source book of criminal justice statistics uh, that indicates that those people who successfully complete uh, their time under supervision, that people paroled do better than those people who are mandatorily released. Um, do you have thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, the, I have not found any consensus in the community of academics who study this on whether people who are released on parole uh, do better than those who max out. Um, I've seen studies that say they do. I've seen studies that say they don't. And, I, and I've seen um, very passionate academics use data to make the case in both directions. I will say that uh, it makes intuitive sense that people who are released on parole do better, but not for the reason you would think. Uh, I think advocates for parole boards say that people who are released on parole do better than those who max out because the parole board is really good at only releasing people who are bound to do well on the outside. Mm -hmm. um, the, to me, it seems, it seems uh, clear that the parole boards are so very conservative that they're, they're really only going to release people who they know are not going to come back to bite them. Um, and, and so therefore, of course, the people who they release are going to do better because they're just not taking chances. If they have somebody who's sort of a jump call, a, a jump ball, you know, somebody who looks like they might do well, but mm, they might not at, the way the system's set up right now, they're probably more likely to keep them in than to let them out. And so the numbers are going to be higher on parole uh, for, for the, sorry, excuse me, the recidivism numbers are going to, may turn out to then be lower uh, among people who are released on parole than people who max out. Um, but I've definitely heard skeptical people say, you know, is this really the measure we want to be using? Um, is, is, what, what do we mean when we say recidivism? Does somebody who, say, committed a sex crime, do they commit another sex crime? Or do they commit, like, uh, do they rob the corner store? That's not to say one is better than the other, of course, but it is to ask 
you know, what do we want from our parole boards and what do we want from our criminal justice system? Well, we is, wanna- but isn't that a question across the board? And I, wanna, I do want to touch upon that um, for the rest of the program, because it's, it is a matter of perception. If we have this sense that we've got to decrease pressure on prison systems, some suggest that we over-incarcerate. It is true uh, that we have the highest rate of, of incarceration in the world. Um, so, so people are saying, what can we do? And there's a variety of discussions on a variety of issues, talking about ways to reduce the reliance upon incarceration, many at the front end, many at the back end. So people are saying, you know, parole, you should be doing a better job of releasing more people going back to the models during the 60s, 70s, and 80s when most people got out on parole. But People don't seem to have a lot of confidence in the parole process, and my guess is that because we're so secretive about what is parole, how decisions are made, um, how it operates, what it does, I, I think people lack confidence in the paroling process, and I wanted to get your opinion. Oh, I think that's 100% true. I mean, as the board chair in New Hampshire told me, people can't trust what they can't see. Um, and, you know, the the interesting thing is the clip that I was mentioning earlier, the news clip that the Ohio Parole Board shows to people to sort of demonstrate why they're in such an uncomfortable position. What struck me when I watched that news clip is that the, the television reporter who, who did that segment was incredibly frustrated by not being able to get an answer from the board about why they released this guy. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't even calling the board out for releasing him. They were calling the board out for not being able to explain why they released him. Mm-hmm. And I really think, and this is, this is what emerged in the course of that Temple University study that I told you about earlier, um, that when the board can explain why they made the decision that they made, when they have really clear guidelines that they follow consistently and that they're transparent about, I think that people have a lot more sort of um, empathy towards them and understanding uh, for the the reason that they make the decisions that they make. And in our democratic society, if people understand why the boards are doing what they're doing and they don't like it, then they can, you know, they can they can pressure their legislators or they can pressure their their governor to sort of change the way the system works. But if we don't know what they're doing, if they're just hiding behind these sort of veils of secrecy, then, uh, yeah, people are going to be extremely frustrated. But here I go back to my Maryland experience. In all states, there are national and, and we have federal privacy acts, uh, but every state has a privacy act. In every state, uh, medical and psychological information are required prohibitions. I could lose my job and go to prison um, if I gave out information on an offender that dealt with medical and psychological information. Uh, some states, such as Maryland, had a sociological provision, which, you know, what isn't sociological? So if you have all of these privacy laws and all of these restrictions on what you can give regarding a particular offender. Um, How can parole boards be open and honest? Because you could have a person with a raging uh, substance abuse history, a raging uh, cocaine history, and maybe through the process he has gone to the prison system, he's no longer testing positive, he's uh, been to all of the courses, um, so he seems to have his drug substance abuse problem under control. Uh, That may be a really decent reason as to why the parole board chose uh, to parole him, considering that there is very strong evidence correlating the degree of substance abuse and criminal activity. So there's a good reason for moving this person along, giving this person an opportunity, but you can't talk about that. 
well, I would say that's never prevented our criminal justice system from transparency before. I mean, uh, that kind of material is routinely introduced into evidence in uh, criminal trials, uh, and uh, all of the records from criminal trials are public records. So I don't see why the parole board needs to operate under different rules than any other players in our criminal justice system. Because the judicial system operates under a different set of rules than the executive system, the executive branch of government. In every state, the executive branch of government, which we all belong to, make these required prohibitions. Uh, well, what some people would say, what I, what I heard from some people who are um, who who are calling for the abolition of parole boards, uh, the, like for instance, um, the model penal code, which is uh, uh, this very influential document written by legal scholars on, and is, revi- is revised every number of years. The most recent revision to the model penal code calls for ending the system of parole and instead implementing. Uh, a second look system. Uh, the, the Colson task force also recommended a system like this, a second look system that transfers the function of the parole board back into the judiciary, where after people have served um, a long a portion of a long sentence, um, they can go before a judge who can evaluate uh, whether circumstances have changed enough to warrant a changing of their sentence. Um, and it's for precisely that reason that the, our judicial system has all these rules in place to protect and safeguard people's uh, people's constitutional rights. And 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 since parole boards don't operate under those same uh, safeguards. Uh, their feeling, you know, the feeling of these critics is that those kind of decisions really belong in the courtroom. We're going to be doing two radio shows in the near future on the Colson Task Force um, uh, called Reforming Federal Corrections. Um, so we're going to be touching upon all of that in the near future with people, uh, members of the task force. Um, but in, in the final analysis, what we need is a way of mechanism for taking individuals who are reasonable risks and moving them through the criminal justice system assuming that they've done well in prison, assuming that they've taken the proper courses, assuming that there has been victim input, assuming that they have bettered themselves uh, to as, as, as much as you possibly can, considering the lack of services within a lot of prison systems, they become reasonable risks, and society should expect those reasonable risks to take place as we did, again, throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Am I right? Uh I, you know, as a reporter, I'm not here to make policy prescriptions, but yes, that's what many people who are calling for the reform of parole boards are calling for, precisely that. So the whole idea is, as you said, a set of specific criteria that if they meet that criteria, the presumption would be the presumption to release. If the person want infraction-free in the prison system and considering how um, uh, crowded our prison systems are, uh, that's very important in terms of running safe and sane institutions. Uh, so if the person had no infractions, went to his GED courses or completed them, got his his plumbing certificate, uh, completed substance abuse, then the presumption at a certain point uh, from a statutory point of view, this is something enacted by a general assembly, would be that unless there was a compelling reason, that person probably would be released. Correct. That, that is the system in, in South Dakota. And, and what I will also say is if you talk to uh, wardens and correctional administrators, they all say that a predictable parole policy is a really great behavior management tool. 
Because if people know and trust that if they follow the rules and they do what they're supposed to do, that they will be, you know, awarded parole accordingly, then they're much more likely to follow the rules and do what they're supposed to do. Whereas in states where parole feels arbitrary, like some guys who follow the rules get it and other guys don't for reasons that nobody can quite discern, well, then it no longer seems like a good incentive to do to do the right thing because, you know, you it's kind of a crapshoot if you do the right thing, whether you're going to get parole or not. Where do you see parole in the next 10 years along the lines of the model that we've been discussing? You know, that is a really good question. Uh, I've seen the, the, uh, the one place that um, there seems to be some movement on changing their parole system is Virginia. Um, Governor Terry McAuliffe called um, a, some, some kind of commission to study whether the state should reinstate its parole board. Uh, Virginia was one of the states that abolished parole during the 90s. Um, and that commission is currently hearing testimony and, and, and studying. And I honestly don't know what they're going to decide to do because, uh, you know, there, there is a really big debate um, going on. I mean, if you, can call, if you can call a handful of criminologists studying this tiny corner of the mm-hmm. system, big debate. But among those that study it, there really is a debate over whether it makes sense to rely more heavily on parole as a way to control prison populations, assuming you can reform uh, the, the lack of transparency and the lack of accountability um, and sort of uh, systematize the way that parole boards do business. Um, and then on the other side of the debate, there's people that just say there are not enough constitutional protections. There is just no way to not have the whole process be tangled up in politics. It's better to just jettison, altoge- jettison it all together and, and build a second look um, uh, mechanism into the judiciary. Uh, so I, I really don't know what direction it's going to go in. But transparency becomes the key because if the average citizen sees a transparent process and understands where they're going with it, they're going to be more prone to accept it. I certainly think so. And, and one thing I will say is there's this um, there's this researcher in, in Canada. His name is Ralph Sarin, and he's piloting 15 this, seconds. This, Go ahead. This uh, structured decision making model that really allows for a, a new and interesting level of transparency. Our guest today has been Beth Schwartzapfel. She is a staff writer for The Marshall Project. www.themarshallproject.org M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L project.org. Ladies and gentlemen, this is D.C. Public Safety. We appreciate your comments. We even appreciate your criticisms, and we want everybody to have themselves a very pleasant day.